Hopes that China's reopening would power the global economy have been quickly dashed. But is that disappointment warranted? This is not something we have seen in previous cycles. That this entrenched and pervasive lack of confidence playing out in the Chinese economy. So this is a very difficult environment. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be an easy fix here. I'm Allison Nathan, and this is Goldman Sachs Exchanges. China's emergence from COVID lockdowns was expected to boost the global economy, but a string of disappointing data is giving investors, policymakers, and market watchers a new reason to worry. To explain the drivers and the outlook for the world's second-largest economy, I'm speaking with my colleague in Goldman Sachs Research, Wei Shan, our chief China economist. Wei, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Nice to be on. Wei, a lot's happened. Let's just start with some context. How did we get here? So we know that all countries went through COVID, and after reopening, most economies will show a strong and sustained recovery. In the case of China, it's a bit disappointing that it seems that the recovery and reopening impulse only lasted for one quarter. The first quarter was good, but in the second quarter, the recovery seemed to have fizzled out. And also, what's surprising was the sort of spillover effect that also didn't play out as investors were hoping for. Whether it's the stronger oil demand translating into higher commodity prices or outbound travel being very strong, we saw some of it, but not to the extent the markets are expecting. In retrospect, what was the key drivers of China's less than anticipated post reopening recovery? I think there might be two reasons. One is ahead of the COVID pandemic. I think there were just too many imbalances in the economy to begin with. Recall that the 2018-2019, China was already under growth pressure stemming from the trade war and also the 2017-18 regulatory tightening, especially on the credit tightening and private companies and so on. The second reason is that the COVID pandemic, how the government dealt with it, was also significantly different from other economies. In other economies, you saw government protected households and sent cash to households, and that helped to maintain demand. Versus in China, the government also did a lot of support, but mainly on the supply side, making sure China can still produce and exports. On the household side, people did not receive cash handouts. At the same time, we had regulatory tightening on the internet. We had a housing deleveraging campaign. So that set of policies led us to today's environment, which is reopened, but lackluster recovery. And what's your view on China growth at this point and how has it changed given this disappointing data? Yeah, think about the Chinese economy right now. I think there are a few things at play. We have to take them together in projecting the future. One is just the strength of consumption recovery, how much more and how far we are still below trend and how do we think about the organic growth power. The second is thinking about a policy response. Is the government going to stimulate? Is the government just going to sit on the sideline and not do much? And the third is external environment. Will we see a shallow recession in other economies and therefore translating to less external demand for Chinese goods? So when you put everything together, our central projection is that on the external side, uh, we're more optimistic that 
Chinese exports can stay flat this year. And the second half, the third quarter may still be some headwind because last year's base was relatively high. But fourth quarter, young year growth should be better because we had a low base, the COVID X wave and supply chain disruption. We should see a strong number. On the organic recovery side, I think we're still seeing consumption recovery, especially in those services sector, contact intensive sectors. So we see that there's still room for recovery. Now, the key question in the, what the government will do and our base case is that they will do some easing, but not too much. So when you add everything up together, our sequential projection will be third quarter should be better than second quarter. That's a primarily because we're already seeing easing signs that will help the sequential growth. And also the destocking, restocking, that inventory cycle should be moving from a very strong headwind in the second quarter to less of a headwind in the third quarter. So for those reasons, we're projecting sequential growth to pick up from second quarter to third quarter. For the full year, our projection is at 5.4% GDP growth. And where was that coming into the year, just for some perspective? So coming into the year, we were waiting for the recovery signal as we tracked the data, as we got the first quarter data, which was quite strong. We lifted our GDP forecast in March to 6%. But now after seeing what's happening in April and May and where the June data was tracking, we revised down our forecast and the most significant downward revision was for the second quarter growth. And so let's just drill down further into some of the segments of the economy. Are we expecting to see some sectors weaker than others? If you look at the Chinese economy, it's a big country. Different sectors are faring differently. And even within the same sector, sometimes you might see divergences. For example, if you look at investment, if you look at the state-owned enterprises, SOE, their investment growth have been double-digit this year versus the private companies, their investment has been flat or negative young year. I talk about the services, restaurants, these sectors that were very much depressed by COVID controls, and now they still have room to increase their outperforming. On the flip side, if you look at the property sector, despite the large decline last year, we continue to see decline in land sales, in housing starts. So the economy is in a very divergent and differentiated place. And it's hard to using just one measure or one parameter to describe is a good, is a bad. And if we think about the segment of the population that's bearing the brunt of this downturn, it's young people. The work that you've done has shown 16 to 24 year olds are in the crosshairs of this. Why is that the case? The youth unemployment rate in China is very high. According to official stats, 16 to 24-year-old unemployment rate is currently at 20%. That's doubling from in 2019 of 10%. We did some analysis and it seems that there are both cyclical and structural factors behind the rising youth unemployment rate. On the cyclical front, you can imagine that young workers' unemployment rate is more sensitive to service sector economic growth. When we look at historical data, that's precisely what the data shows. And currently, as we discussed, demand is weak and young workers have been disproportionately impacted. I think about education sector crackdown. A lot of young folks work in tutoring industry and they were forefront in bearing that burden. But there are also structural reasons. 
for the current young generation in China, more than half of them go to college. That's much higher than, say, in the U.S., only a third of young folks go to college. So because over time, when kids are the only child in the family, family want them to go to college, get a better education, you got this rapidly increasing number of college graduates as a harder for the labor market to digest who these folks want a white collar jobs. At the same time, the economic structure has been shifting very rapidly. You think about uh, people who went into college majoring in finance, majoring in real estate or majoring internet. When they come out of college, all of a sudden the government wants more people doing semiconductor engineering or technicians. There are mismatches between where people are studying and the graduates colleges are producing versus the labor market demand. So that's another reason that this is a really hard problem for the government to solve. There's been so much focus on the property sector just because it is the largest sector of the economy. So is it even possible to see growth holding up if that property sector continues to slump as you expect? How much impact is it having on the broader economy? Yeah, you're right that there's no other sector in the Chinese economy as big as the property sector. It's a very long supply chain. It has upstream all the way to steel, cement, mining, and a downstream. When people move in, they buy TV, they might buy furniture, they buy home appliances. So you can imagine that the property sector, if it's continued to decline at a very rapid pace, it's going to have a tremendous amount of a downward pressure on the economy. I think that's one of the biggest risks or downside risks to the Chinese economy right now. But at the same time, what we saw in the first quarter, sales were beating expectations. Part of that was just pent up demand going into year end and beginning of this year. Everyone was getting COVID and getting sick. So a lot of the transaction would have happened. They were concentrated in February, March, and then come April, May, uh, we saw a big decline in transactions. So if we don't get to the sort of expectations start to turn more bearish and people are reluctant to buy their properties, which make price fall further, which dampen sentiment even more. If we don't get into that negative feedback loop, our expectation is a sort of sales is going to stabilize at this low level. And that would help translate back into the economic impact in terms of upstream, downstream, in terms of a contribution to GDP. It will be another year of a drag to GDP growth, but perhaps not as dramatic, as negative as last year. So that's baked into our forecast. And as you can see, there's certainly downside risk. And when you speak to clients, are you seeing any important differences in sentiment between domestic investors versus foreign investors? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Sitting where we are, we do talk to both onshore investors and offshore investors. From time to time, views could diverge. At the beginning of the year, I would characterize onshore investors as much more pessimistic than offshore investors. You can understand why that's the case, right? Other countries reopen, economy rebound, demand very strong. So that's the lens offshore investors are looking at China in January, February, March. Whereas for onshore investors, they didn't experience that and they were more cautious. At this point in Beijing, when we talk to investors, what's interesting is that we notice a stabilization or even some improvement in sentiment among investors. The logic being, look, the policymaker already started the easing and things are so bad, they can only go north. Whereas offshore clients are disappointed by market performance and growth trajectory turning more and more bearish. Oftentimes, we see the oscillation and divergence in investor views when we talk to 
onshore versus offshore investors. And as you said, the policy response here is going to be tremendously important. China's central bank recently cut short-term borrowing costs to help boost economic growth. So you mentioned you expect more easing. What might that look like? Yeah, Chinese government is more top-down and uh, has a lot of uh, instruments to manage the macroeconomy. So when we talk about the policy, it's helpful to think about the monetary policy, fiscal policy, but also housing policy and other industry-level policies. How do we think about, how do we put it in the framework? I think of it in the following way. Monetary policy might be the one facing the least hurdle in terms of easing. Why do I say that? Because you don't really need, for example, National People's Congress Standing Committee to approve anything. Let's say if you want to increase your local government special bond issues by law, that has to be approved by MPC Standing Committee. So the turtle will be higher versus cutting interest rate by 10 basis points. You don't need that type of approval. So I think that makes monetary policy to be the forefront of an easing choice. And that's why we saw a 10 basis points of a rate cut. We're expecting another triple R cut this quarter. We're expecting another 10 basis point rate cut in the fourth quarter. So we are on the easing path. That's the monetary policy. On the fiscal policy, it's harder to imagine we get dramatically more fiscal resources just by doing the math, the going through all the channels land sales are down, the budget's already being approved, barring some extraordinary event. It's very unlikely for us to see, for example, central government special bond issuance or something major happening. And then on the property sector, we think the name of the game is risk management, right? We talk about long-term demographics, fundamental demand, housing for living, for speculation. You can see the forward of housing demand is on a downward trajectory. So the government wants to prevent it from becoming too much of a negative spillover to the rest of the economy, but they're not interested in engineering a yield turn, engineering a sharp increase in the property sector. And then for the other industrial level policies, what we saw, for example, past a couple of years, internet sector regulatory actions that might have stabilized or even eased a little bit. Most recently, we saw some headlines coming from Zhejiang province where Alibaba was headquartered, suggesting that there's some improvement or encouraging news coming from those sector level regulatory policies. And then in the new economy, for example, electric vehicles, the support for those new manufacturing sector, that's going to continue. So taken together, it's a pretty complex set of rules. But in terms of magnitude, we think it's a moderate amount of easing, but don't expect too much, just given that this year's growth target seems to be within reach. And the government is really focusing on transforming, restructuring the economy that engineering a short-term sharp increase in growth. So you're generally painting a picture of policy restraint in addressing some of this weakness. I think the big question on investors' minds is whether that's enough to bring back confidence, both confidence domestically and investor confidence in the country that it is going to be able to pull itself out of this slump reform better in the second half of the year and going forward. So what's your take on that? Is the government doing enough to restore confidence in the growth picture? I think if under our base case expectation, no dramatic increase or no policy measures that would be quote unquote shock and awe, then it's very hard for confidence to turn around. 
if we don't see a major structural announcement and really indicating government's attitude and actions toward private enterprises will be fundamentally different to to inject that dose of confidence, then I don't think just by saying we support private companies, by saying Chinese growth will be robust going forward, will be convincing enough to consumers, investors, and so on. So that is a place for the policymakers also very hard to deal with. This is not something we have seen in previous cycles that this entrenched and pervasive lack of confidence playing out in the Chinese economy. Because previously, you know, you ease a housing policy and the economy just accelerates very quickly versus this time around. What exactly do you do? For example, if you have a youth unemployment rate very high, what do you do? Another infrastructure project is probably not going to solve your problem. If private companies are worried about regulatory uncertainties, what are you going to do? Cutting 10 basis points interest rate also doesn't cut it. So this is a very difficult environment. We are also trying to think through what are the options. And fortunately, it doesn't seem to be an easy fix here. So what are the implications of that for growth in the medium to longer term? In terms of the medium term outlook, we are on the cautious side. If you think to 2025, by which time the COVID impact should be all behind us. And what's the growth forecast? We are anchoring at 4%. You know, it's before COVID in 2019, you ask us to make a forecast for 2025 for GDP growth. I probably would have said 5%. But given what's going on over the past few years, some structural changes, whether it's a housing sector, whether it's a geopolitical front, whether it's domestic reorientation, the focus on security, I think the cost of all of these would be slower economic growth. So the broader context is that China has these longer term policy goals and there's going to be trade-offs between growth and achieving those goals. Is that the right way to think about that? Yeah, I think so. I think that if you think about how the Chinese government's priorities have shifted, both because of the domestic developments and the debt issue was a property sector, was local government, and they need to find a way to de-risk internally and the external environment, and they need to find a way to reduce their reliance on external side, then you have a economy, let's say you succeed in both stabilizing and deleveraging your economy and increase your self-reliance, then there's got to be some cost, right? The cost is a slower economic growth. So that's the here, the trade-off that is embedded in our GDP forecast. But we often hear that policymakers are very focused on growth for the reason that they understand growth has to be at a certain level to support the population to ultimately achieve their longer-term policy goals. What are you watching that might indicate a change in the trajectory of policy or China's economy more broadly at this point? I think it's important to recognize two things. One is that sometimes the policymakers talk about these things as if they can have A, B, C, and D all at the same time. And we know fundamentally that's not possible. Let's say they laid out by 2035, they want to double income again. They want to have a certain level of economic growth. But at the same time, they have said again and again for food security, energy security, supply chain security, data security, everything, that security is put at the forefront of their priority list. So when you think about all the things they talk about, something will have to give. I think as a forecasters, we just have to make a decision that among all the things that they would like to have, when faced with a hard choice, what 
ultimately will be their decision. And in our view, we think the security part is more important. And yes, if we didn't have to make that choice, great, we have a stronger economic growth and uh, party legitimacy and people's happiness is all great. But if they have to choose, do you want a security or do you want a strong growth? We think they probably want to prioritize the security. And that's how I think about it. When investors are thinking about China, we really have to rethink the policy framework. The old cycle, slow down, major stimulus, growth takes priority. That's all the KPIs. Economic growth is the top priority. I think we have to rethink that reaction function and policy objective. I would mention, for example, more recently, you hear President Xi Jinping talk about he want to have a more RMB internationalization and other countries using RMB. But at the same time, China is not going to let go capital control. And uh, fundamentally, those two things are not consistent with each other. When you have a capital control, it's hard for other countries to choose to use your currency. But then when faced with that choice, we think that the government probably going to put more emphasis on control. So that's why we think the pace of RMB internationalization may have to slow. So that's the underlying forecasting exercise that we're doing. And also, I want to emphasize to investors, we do need to shift how we think about China. Really interesting way. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. And before you go, we'd like to introduce a new podcast from Goldman Sachs Exchanges. It's called The Markets. Each week in just 10 minutes or less, we'll be breaking down the key issues moving markets that week, giving you the information you need to stay ahead. Search for The Markets and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to another episode of Goldman Sachs Exchanges, recorded on Thursday, July 6, 2023. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.